Hello, everyone. Happy Friday, and welcome back to the Views from the 573 Podcast, the podcast that isn't going to spend a few days in the dark like Aaron Rodgers is to figure out his future. Because we don't have time for that. With what the NBA has given us in the last 24 or so hours. We don't have time for that. A trade deadline. What a trade deadline it was, everybody. Uh, said we were going to talk about it uh, last week. And the trade deadline did not disappoint with all these moves. Superstars getting traded. Um, all these other little deals going on. Five second round picks being dealt. <laughs> like... Holy crap, never seen so many second-round picks getting traded in my life. But we are going to talk a little bit about the madness that was the trade deadline, which concluded yesterday around 3 Eastern to my time. So we're going to talk about all those moves, including the moves that include a couple of stars being traded, including one that happened in the middle of the night. (laughs) The one time I go to bed early... And uh, and and it happens, uh, but we're gonna spend some time talking about that, and uh, getting some thoughts out there. Again, me and Charles, uh, I've already touched base with them and see where we can what we can do uh, next week with as far as the All Star Game, uh, with All Star Break coming up, and talking some more about these moves and how we think that's going to affect. The East and the West going forward as we got, what, 20 some odd games left to be played before playoffs. So while that's still not a whole lot of games, that's there's a whole lot of time where a lot of stuff can be changed in a couple months time. But we'll spend some time talking a little bit more about it, but we'll talk some we'll talk some today about all these moves. A lot of stuff has happened and a lot of stuff has happened in general in the world of sports. Uh, breaking news coming out of college football last night uh, that we have been wanting to know if it was going to happen or not, and it's happened. So we'll talk about that, touch base on that real quick. Also got a couple of NFL stuff to deal with besides the Super Bowl, which we'll get to that um, a little bit later on. Uh, probably be the last thing we cover uh, just to, just to get that out the way. But we got a couple of little of NFL news and notes uh, to talk about here at the top, particularly with the Hall of Fame being announced. And we'll talk a little bit about that, talk about some of the awards that were announced last night. As uh, I actually got one of the predictions right on. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that here to start off the show. Programming reminders. Let's get the house cleaning out the way. Of course, be sure to go check us out wherever you guys get your podcasts. Be sure to go check us out on Twitter at 573pods. Be sure to check out the entertainment channel. A couple of new pods here in the last couple of weeks here with uh, with our comic book movie draft. Be sure to go check that one out. And me and Peter spent a little bit of time talking about the upcoming DCU laid out by James Gunn and Peter Safran talked a little bit about that. Some of our speculation and some of our thoughts about those projects. So be sure to go check those two pod pods out. Uh, if you are interested in what we have to say about, uh, the DCU or just interested in how we drafted the comic book movies. So with all that out the way, let's get on into the pod. Let's talk about a couple of the NFL news and notes. Before we close out with the Super Bowl, we're going to start with the NFL, end with the NFL. So let's start with the awards. And, of course, around this time, the awards are announced. MVP, Offensive Player of the Year, Defensive Player of the Year, and all that good stuff. So we had our, so we had the awards announced last night. And, no surprise, Patrick Mahomes picked up his second MVP award, uh, getting this award over Jalen Hurts, who Jalen was a pretty good favorite over the course of the season. I think re- things really start to tilt Mahomes' way once Hurts got a l- little bit banged up in Chicago and Mahomes started to seize control on this award. And Mahomes got the majority of the vote. 
And looking at the rest of the rankings for this of who else got votes just in, in the top five, um, it hurts finished second, Josh Allen finished third, Joe Burrow finished fourth and Justin Jefferson finished fifth and got actually, I think a couple of votes to be in the top two, top three in which you had Hertz and Allen get one vote each for first place. But Mahomes comes away with the award. And this was a the first year of a new voting system employed by the AP asked the voters to rank the five finalists for MVP and three-fourths other awards rather than just vote for one in each case. So Mahomes picked up the MVP award. Justin Jefferson, the prediction I got right, won the AP's Offensive Player of the Year award. Of course, Jefferson led the league with 128 receptions and had over 1,800 yards. And with the scheme that O'Connell brought over from the Rams in which Cooper Cup thrived, figured that Jefferson was going to have some of the same success. And it has marked the first time two receivers that ever won the award in consecutive seasons. A defensive player of the year goes to Nick Bosa, led the league with 18 and a half sacks, and was just part of a really, really solid 49ers defense, averaging a league low uh, 16.3 points, not letting teams score on them, and 300 yards per game. That might seem like a lot, but in today's day and age, but the way the offenses roll, that's not a whole lot. And, of course, D'Amico Ryan's, who's now the coach of the Texans and was also named the AP's assistant coach of the year, uh, had a lot to do with the success the defense had. Meanwhile, the New York Jets get a little positivity here for the Jets. They used two top 10 picks to become the third team in NFL history to sweep the AP's offensive and defensive rookie of the year awards. Sauce Garner, who has already solidified himself as a top three corner at the very least in this league in year one, led the NFL with 20 pass breakups. Garrett Wilson, number 10 pick, led all NFL rookies in receiving yards with over 1,100. Kind of surprising considering the quarterback situation going on there with the, with the Jets, with Zach Wilson. But... Comes away with the award. Kenneth Walker received more first place votes than Wilson, but the new voting system left Wilson with more total points to get the vote. But and Kenneth Walker is actually probably a pretty solid favorite for this award uh, as well, le- leading into the season. Uh, AP Coach of the Year, Brian Dable, really kind of no surprise here with what he's done with this Giants team that still needs a lot of talent, but somehow got this team to the playoffs and got them into the divisional round. So that doesn't not go out that doesn't go unnoticed. Uh beating out Kyle Shanahan for this award. Next up, going back to Kenneth Walker Seahawks, the AP's comeback player of the year was Geno Smith, who really was a huge surprise for this season with over 4,280 yards, 30 touchdown passes, ranked 7th in the league in QBR. And coming off of trading Russell Wilson, giving Geno the keys to the QB job, really expected, I think a lot of us, and myself included, expected there to be a dramatic fall-off. And there it wasn't. Seahawks made the playoffs, and Geno was a big part of that reason. And then the next one up, and I think the last one we have before we get into the Hall of Fame stuff, Dak Prescott winning the NFL's Walter Payton Man of the Year Award. Probably the the best award, I, I would say, is an award that's a recognition of his work off the field with through his Faith Fight Finish Foundation. And, you know, even though we've talked about Dak and, and his turnover problems, this is a bright spot in what 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 should have been for the Cowboys probably a better finish, but Dak Prescott probably wins the best award of the night, Walter Payne Man of the Year Award, 
So those are some of the more notable awards that were handed out last night. And we had our Hall of Famers for the 2023 class announced last night as well. And it is headlined by a really good class, particularly looking at the players. Rondé Barber, uh, Daryl Revis, a couple of all-star corners to lead us off here. Joe Thomas, you know, it kind of dates you if you remember the draft Joe Thomas was drafted in. And now you're seeing him going into the Hall of Fame. Uh, It really does. And so he makes it in just a model of consistency for Cleveland for so many years. Uh, Only played 10 years, 10, 11 years, but man, was he awesome in all of them. Then you got a couple of linebackers here and Zach Thomas and in DeMarcus Ware. As this class, which includes Don Coryell, who's a head coach for the Cardinals and Chargers, Chuck Howley, linebacker for the Bears and Cowboys back in in the late 50s and early 60s and actually finished playing in the early 70s. Uh, Joe Klecko played for the Jets and the Colts from 1977 to 1988. And Ken Riley, who spent some time with the Bengals from 69 to 83. They are all going into the Hall of Fame as well. Howley and Riley were senior committee finalists and Coriel was a coach contributor committee finalist. But this class was a huge class as far as the defensive side of the ball, as it marks the first time since the league's AFL-NFL merger in 1970 that four of the maximum five slots in the modern era class have been defensive players. In 2021, he had three of them, which were Leroy Butler, Richard Seymour, Bryant Young, and the fourth defensive player in the class was a senior committee finalist in Sam Mills. And so we had five guys from the modern class, or four guys, where they were four or five guys that were in, in the modern class with Barber, Revis. Those two guys are locked down corners for a long time, particularly Revis. He shut down one side of the field almost every game. Joe Thomas, again, just an all-star left tackle who probably had his chances to leave Cleveland, but never did. Um, that probably took a lot of guts. Uh, Zach Thomas, just a stud linebacker. Probably remember him more for his time with the Dolphins. That's where he spent the majority of his career from 96 to 2007. Uh, was just an all-pro linebacker there for so many years. And then DeMarcus Ware, who spent around eight seasons with the Cowboys and spent around three with the Broncos. Just a complete stud on the edge, wrecking havoc for both those teams. And, I mean, what else can you say about this class? Again, going back to this class being defense heavy, uh, those guys made huge impacts on the defensive side of the ball. And... Then you have Joe Thomas, who is one of the best modern left tackles to play this game and can probably put himself up there with him among the best with what he did and was probably the most decorated guy. Uh, again, his time in Cleveland, only winning record just once in his 11 seasons there, his rookie year, never played in a postseason game. And had 10 Pro Bowl selections are the eighth most for an offensive lineman. So a really, really good class coming into the Hall of Fame in 2023. And they will be inducted into the Hall in Canton in August where you got the Hall of Fame game being played. So congratulations to all those guys for getting into the Hall of Fame. Again, it makes you feel a little bit old to see some names that you used to see growing up, like Joe Thomas, like DeMarcus Ware, like Darrell Revis. Uh, it's really strange, and it kind of dates you, but you can say, hey, I got to watch a couple Hall of Famers go to work. So there's that plus side. But congratulations to those guys, the Pro Football Hall of Fame class of 2023. So with that being said, uh, let's go to a couple other things that uh, we're going to talk about here pretty soon. We're going to get to the NBA here 
pretty quick. But uh, Oklahoma and Texas decided to make some headlines as they are now heading to the SEC in 2023 for the 23-24 season. A lot of stuff up in the air as to whether they would leave early or have to wait to 2025 when they are able to leave at that time officially. But as of last night, they paid the Big 12 a total of $100 million to leave a year earlier with the teams expected to offset that cost with future revenues. And that is subject also to final approval from the Oklahoma, Texas governing boards. The money will also go to Fox to compensate for the equivalent of seven lost Texas and Oklahoma games. And that means that at the same time that UCLA and USC are heading to the Big Ten and the college football playoff is expanding to 12 teams, Texas and Oklahoma are going to be making their SEC debuts. Now, we I don't think we still have a clear picture of what the scheduling for the SEC is going to look like in the future. But I think with this decision, that's going to push that timeline up a bit, and they're going to figure out what exactly they're going to do. Are they going to do a pod system? Are they going to do like a couple other conferences are already deciding to do and say away with divisions and let's not and let that be a thing in the past? So this, ha- I imagine, moves the timeline up a bit in figuring out what exactly to do as. Now those two teams are headed to the SEC a bit earlier than expected. So Texas and Oklahoma are going to have one more year to play for the Big 12 before they move to the SEC. And that means the SEC is going to get a lot more loaded and Big 12, they're already reloading, adding a couple teams via expansion as well. But this is huge news. We were waiting for this one, and it is officially happening. Oklahoma and Texas moving to the SEC a little bit earlier than expected, paying the Big 12 a total of, again, $100 million to leave a year earlier. So... Maybe we can wait on the formal welcome to the SEC a little bit later on. But welcome to the SEC, Oklahoma, Texas. Probably the formal welcome to the SEC moment will happen when they start to play SEC teams regularly. So uh, I had to wait a little bit for that. But there's some news coming out of college football. As uh, Just as we get done talking about college football, it sneaks its way back in somehow. So moving on. Let's talk some NBA, but we got to start with this first. LeBron, we were waiting on this to happen. We didn't know when. We've been keeping track of it for a couple of weeks now for and keeping up a timeline of when it might happen. And it happened on Tuesday night with LeBron James breaking Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's 38, 39-year-old scoring record and becoming the all-time leading scorer in NBA history. Now, and talking about LeBron, of course, comes with the GOAT conversation about uh, who's the GOAT, him or Jordan. And I do think this gives Jordan, this this does give LeBron a heads up because even though he has four championships, he's been to a lot of finals compared to Jordan, who does have more titles than him. This does give LeBron a milestone that he is going to be remembered for for a long time. Again, it took nearly 40 years for this record to be broken. And we know LeBron is probably going to play a couple more seasons at the very least. And he's going to add on to that. He is going to get to over 40,000 points. And so now LeBron has a historical achievement attached to his resume that is going to take somebody extraordinarily awesome at getting the ball in the basket to go and pass pass that record. And not to include longevity, durability, it's going to take somebody that's had those two things intact like LeBron has in his career. 
He's had the longevity thing intact and the durability. LeBron's rarely been hurt. You can point out a couple times here and there, but for the most part, he has stayed healthy through his 20-year career and has not had any significant injury, has not had any major surgery, has kept his body well in check, spends millions. It's well documented on his body to keep him healthy and keep him right. Uh, it, especially, that's important as you get older. And so I think this does hold some weight in an argument over Jordan. Whereas Jordan, yes, he's six for six, but he doesn't have anything like this. And he all, and listen, LeBron is also fourth all time in assists right now. He's top five in assists. It's probably going to be tough for him to get to number one, number two. But still, that's top five in assists and also the leading scorer in NBA history. And in the story of LeBron, we always think of him as sort of more magic-like, as a guy that is wanting to make his teammates better, make, you know, wanting to make the extra pass, get his teammates involved, tossing it to shooters and letting them shoot as they get wide open, as he's driving down to the lane and all the attention's on him. We think of LeBron as that guy. I don't know if we thought of him as being an all-time leading scorer kind of guy. And that's kind of insane to think about when, again, we've considered him to be a Magic Johnson 2.0 or our modern ver version of him. And now here he is, shattered the all-time scoring record. It's absolutely mind-boggling to get your head around considering that narrative of LeBron. But it was just a great moment to see happen on, on Tuesday I said, listen, I'm only watching this to see history get made. As soon as it happens, I could care less um, about what happens in this game. I don't care if the Lakers win, Thunder win, or whatever. I imagine there's a lot of other uh, people in, in a crypto arena, still getting used to that, that, uh, that were like, listen, don't care if we win or lose, even though there's still a lot of implications on that for the Lakers. They were like, we just want to see history being made. And we saw that being made. We saw all the stars in attendance. Denzel came out. Uh, apparently, Denzel has not been around a whole lot of people like that in quite some time. And uh, you know it's that big when that happens. And him come out, Jay-Z come out, everybody else come out, his family all being there. And just seeing the moments there with his family, that was really awesome. Uh, and, of course, this happens with only, like, what, nine seconds left in the third quarter. My only gripe is, well, could we have just at least let the quarter play out, let it go into the fourth, and, uh, <laughs> and have all the festivities in between the third and fourth? And, uh, you know, that's my only gripe. But LeBron breaking Kareem's scoring record. Congratulations, LeBron. I know we've talked a lot about LeBron, maybe like how corny he is. Um, whether it's as a player, as a dad, or whatever it is. And uh, certainly, me and Charles have had talks about this on the pod. You guys have heard it, but uh, congratulations, LeBron. Uh, he, again, he's only going to play a couple... He's going to play a couple more years at least to, to really get this record up to extraordinary heights. It's going to be over 40,000 before we know it. And it does sound like he's not done anytime soon unless uh, something major happens. But congratulations, LeBron. Uh, what an extraordinary achievement. Again, you can put this up there um, um, among any, of, I think, of Jordan's rings at the very least and say, listen, Jordan never did this. He never became the all-time leading scorer. Um, and also another thing, considering the height that came with LeBron when he entered the league, you know, a lot of people are saying, like, you if you did not exceed expectations and did not become this Hall of Fame type player, it was not going to be successful. And he came in with all this hype, and holy crap, did he ever live up to it. You know how hard it is with players now today to have all this hype and then to live up to it? LeBron's a living embodiment of that. 
So, again, LeBron, congratulations on breaking Kareem's scoring record. One incredible achievement and incredible moment to watch a big part of history that has not been broken for 40 or nearly 40 years. See that being broken on Tuesday night. Again, congratulations, LeBron. So, speaking of the Lakers, let's talk a little bit about the trade deadline because they were some busy bees during this trade deadline, as were a lot of other teams. So, uh, you know, let's spend a little bit of time with the Lakers as they made a couple deals here. As they really absolutely knocked the trade out of the park in what they did, what they gave up, and what they got. And that is, of course, the three-team trade that they did with Minnesota and with Utah and getting Malik Beasley, Jared Vanderbilt, and an old Laker favorite from back in the day, D'Angelo Russell, coming back to the Lakers, in which the Lakers traded Russell Westbrook, and we've been wondering if Westbrook would be dealt, if they were going to find a partner for him or not. They find a deal for him, and they trade him to Utah. And you have Mike Conley going to Minnesota along with Nikhil Alexander-Walker. And you got three second-round picks going back to Minnesota. Jazz are also getting Juan Toscano-Anderson, Damian Jones, and the 2027 Lakers first-round pick that has been thrown out there as a piece for the Lakers to get better. Um, The clear winner... It's the Lakers in this trade. Um, I don't know why Minnesota makes this. Um, I I understand why the Jazz make this. Get another first-round pick. Looking at you, Danny Ainge, hoarding all your 15 first-round picks you now got. Lakers clearly won this trade. You look at what the, all these guys can do. Jared Vanderbilt, really good, solid rotation type of guy. Really versatile. Can do a bit of everything. Is averaging nearly... I think over eight points and nearly eight rebounds from the stats I've seen of him. Um, Malik Beasley gives the Lakers a really good score shooter to go out there and help space the floor for LeBron and AD. And then D'Angelo Russell. You add him, a guy that's already familiar with the Lakers, as a guy that, you know, maybe Minnesota didn't want to pay him. We won't know. But D'Angelo gives them a really dynamic guard to go in that backcourt. And so the Lakers really legitimately added three good players to their rotation to go alongside LeBron, AD, Schroeder. I'm trying to think of who else. Reeves, I guess we'll throw him in there. Uh, Troy Brown. So they added a lot of guys here that can really help them with their spacing and can provide a lot to this team. And with Westbrook, it was a situation that was just not working out. Last year or this year, uh, you were thinking coming off the bench, he was going to be good. And he was. He's, he's a guy that's probably going to be up for sixth man of the year. But it just wasn't working out. It, you know, trying to fit square peg into a round hole um, just wasn't going to work. And so... The Jazz are probably going to buy him out, and he's on the buyout market in which the Clippers and Heat and the Bulls are looking like some teams that are going to be interested in getting him to their teams. Uh, So, honestly, Russ might not have to go too far, just switch Lakers jerseys and go to get a Clippers jersey. And uh, team back up with Paul George. PG's already recruiting him. And so Russ, along with a couple others, are probably going to be big-name guys on the market. Uh, Lakers, they also uh, got Mo Bamba from the Magic and trading Patrick Beverly, a second-round pick, and cash considerations. This is part of a four-team deal, uh, so let's get this all sorted. They traded Thomas Bryant, uh, his playing time to be consistent, goes to the Nuggets, Solid pickup for the Nuggets. Get some big man depth behind the Joker. Lakers receive Mo Bamba, Devon Reed. Get some big man depth behind AD there. 
and the Magic got Patrick Beverly. Beverly, I imagine, is going to be bought out. Is probably going to, at least I saw it was out there on Twitter, maybe back to Minnesota. And the Clippers get Bones Highland, who the Nuggets were looking to move. Uh, the Clippers were also really busy during the trade deadline. So the two LA teams were involved in a whole lot of deals. Um, let's get a couple of the minor deals out of the way before we talk about the big ones. Uh, Raptors add Jakob Podol, uh going back to the Raptors, get him from the Spurs for Keem Birch, 2024 first-round pick, and two second-round picks. And so the Spurs and Raptors make a move. Then we had a, a – all right, that's a four-team deal. We're going to discuss – Discuss that here a little bit later. But Celtics get some backcourt, front court depth, and Mike Muscala get him from the Thunder. We had the Bucks getting Jay Crowder, which is, was a part of the Suns and Nets deal. We'll talk about here in a minute. Uh, Bucks have been a team that has wanted to get Jay Crowder for a while now. Uh, Crowder has not played at all this year, has sat out, but the Bucks. Part of a three-team deal with the Nets and Pacers where the Nets received five second-round picks. Yeah, five second-round picks. Weren't, I wasn't kidding when I said all these second-round picks were being traded away all willy-nilly. No, this is a real thing. Seven second-round picks were involved in this three-team deal. That's how insane it was. Uh, the Pacers received two second-round picks along with Jordan, Nora, and Serge Ibaka, who's going to be bought out. So I imagine he's going to be a guy to look at on the buyout market at, for contending teams. Next up, Blazers, Sixers, Hornets in a three-team deal. Uh, Blazers made a deal earlier with the Knicks, sending Josh Hart to the Knicks, reteaming him along with his backcourt mate at Villanova and Brunson. And the Knicks traded Cam Reddish and a future first-round pick, Reddish, might get some more playing time with the Blazers in that wing rotation. But the Blazers also made this deal getting Matisse Tybel, who has not been playing a whole lot this year, uh, only 12 minutes per game, seeing his time decrease from 25 minutes per game last year, is a two-time all-defensive team member, so really could help the, uh, the Blazers' backcourt a little bit. Sixers get Jalen McDaniels some front court depth to help out in case Embiid has to sit out. They get two second round picks. Hornets get Zvi Mihailuk and another second round pick. Again, was not kidding. Um, Pacers also are getting George Hill back, back to his first NBA team as Milwaukee traded him to Indiana for a second round pick. Then you had the Thunder trading Darius Baisley to the Suns for Dario Saric, the Warriors and the Pistons in a three-team deal. And honestly, not surprised that the Warriors are trying to find some way to get rid of maybe some of their more younger players that weren't producing, like Moody or Wiseman. That's what happened. Pistons get James Wiseman. Hawks receive Sadiq Bey. And the Warriors get Kevin Knox and five second-round picks. Uh, Sadiq Bey, solid pickup for the Hawks, has been a guy that's uh, averaging nearly 15 points per game, nearly five rebounds per game in 28 minutes. All were drop-offs from his stats last year, but still a solid piece. And Wiseman just never seemed to work in Golden State. And so now he's going to a different situation in Detroit to where maybe he can get the time and get the needed development to play in a system that will fit him and that he can fit into and uh, see if he can reach his development there. And just go and say, hey, listen, we we made a mistake. They're admitting it, and they're moving on. And so that deal was made as well. Then we had a three-team deal with the Clippers, Grizzlies, and the Rockets. With the Clippers getting Eric Gordon, three second-round picks from, from Memphis. Grizzlies receiving Luke Kennard. Rockets getting John Wall, Danny Green, and 
the right to the Bucks pick with the Clippers in 23. And you imagine Wall is probably going to want out after not ha- liking his last time there in Houston. Um, Luke Kennard for Memphis, I think should really help some of their half-court woes, half-court offense woes. Gets him a, one of the best shooters in the league. And as far as field goal percentage, I believe he and Desmond Bain were the top two guys from last year. So you're adding those two guys. He can create a little bit off the dribble. Defense, a lot to be desired. But you add another shooter to a roster that needed a little bit more shooting and also good free throw shooter. Grizzlies have needed that. Um, and obviously the Grizzlies were in, a, in trying to look for a couple of deals to, to be a part of in this trade deadline. Of course, them being connected with OG Anubi who was not traded this trade deadline, and also the Kevin Durant sweepstakes, where it sounded like Durant won the Suns. Nets worked with them to make that happen, but that didn't happen. And they also tried to go get a newbie, offered three first-round picks to the Raptors. Guess it just wasn't the right deal. New Orleans was also another guy trying to get him, but they didn't want to... They did not hold any serious talks about him with the Raptors. I also saw they didn't want to trade any of their recent first-round picks like Trey Murphy. So, Anubi stays a Raptor. Uh, but Memphis for, was trying to work the phones yesterday and getting a big move going. Uh, just could not do it. But Kennard, solid guy that adds a lot of shooting to that team that needs it. And I imagine could help with the spacing a little bit and that can only help guys like Ja, Dez, and Jaron. So there's that move. And then the next one up was of course Pelicans um also made another deal getting Devontae Graham or trading Devontae Graham and getting Josh Richardson. Mason Plumley going to the Hornets or going from the Hornets to the Clippers, Reggie Jackson getting bought out from the Hornets. Going to be another big name on the buyout market. Warriors bring Gary Payton back. And I believe that's all the other moves. So let's get on and talk about the two big deals. Talking about the Brooklyn Nets. And I was having a discussion about this in the group chat. And honestly, I probably will put this up in the Spotify poll. What was the worst tenure for the Brooklyn Nets? Was it this era with Katie and Kyrie? Or was it the one with Paul Pierce, Deron Williams, Joe Johnson, and KG? Which one was worse? You can make an argument for both of them and I think not be wrong. So I'm curious to see what the answer to that would be. But Brooklyn made good on Kyrie's trade request and traded him to Dallas on, what was it, Sunday? And seemed to happen pretty quick from all reports in which KD um, has another superstar that leaves him for the moment as the Nets trading Kyrie, trading Markeith Morris to the Mavericks, and getting back an old net and Spencer Dinwiddie, there's a theme here with players going back to old teams. Uh, Dorian Finney-Smith, a 2029 first-round pick and two future second-round picks. And honestly, I thought the Nets did pretty good for themselves here. Uh, Dinwiddie, solid player. Finney-Smith, a solid wing player to add to their rotation. A 2029 first-round pick, so there's some draft capital. Of course, everybody's going to want to talk about what this means for the Mavs. Now, Kyrie is a free agent. There's still a whole lot that can happen in the span of 20 or so games left to be played. And uh, with this contract up in free agency, and, you know, you wonder if Dallas gives him what he wants with the contract extension, will he accept it? Um, I think a lot will depend on how this goes and uh, for the rest of the season. But the Mavericks made a move to try to help Luca, get him some help. That's been the one thing everybody's been clamoring for. Get Luca some help. For goodness sakes, get the man some help. He can't do everything on his own. And 
and listen, there's probably been some jokes about Luca's back hurting because he's carrying this whole Mavericks team on his back, quite literally. And so now we'll have to see how this Kyrie and Luca experiment, see how that's going to work. Um, if I had to be completely honest, I don't think it's going to work. Uh, just based on what we've seen from Kyrie in recent years. But things can change. That's not out of the question. I mean, in life, there's always things that change. People change. Stuff happens. But if I had to bet, I would imagine that this is probably not going to work out. But you got to give credit to the Mavericks for making a move for the finally getting Luka some help. He's needed help really ever since he's got there. And now he's gotten it in the form of one Kyrie Irving. So we'll have to see how that helps the Mavericks and them trying to get in the playoffs, stick into the playoffs, and maybe make a deep run. And then, of course, talk about the move that completely surprised everybody when they woke up. It surprised me when I woke up. And again, I mentioned it was the first time in a while I went to bed that early. And I missed something like this. So really kind of no surprise here. Uh, that seems these things these things trend. But Kevin Durant, that's one to work with him to find the best fit for him. And has eye on the Suns for a while. And that's where he indeed is going. And TJ Warren is as well. TJ Warren, again, a former Sun, uh, going back to his old team. Um, but the Nets... Uh, this was part of a four-team deal where where the Bucks, Jay Crowder, George Hill, Ibaka, Nora, go to the Pacers, all that good stuff. Um, but the Nets in this deal got back Mikael Bridges, Cam Johnson, Juan Pablo, Vallee, and four, no, five first-round picks, including a 2028 first-round pick swap from Phoenix. They get the 2023 first round pick, 25 first round pick, 27 first round pick. They get a 29 first round pick. And also, keep in mind this for the Nets, to really hurt them, is the whole Harden deal with the pick swap thing with Houston. That could probably play a factor here, and Houston's probably a little bit too happy about this right now. But as for the Nets, talking about them, uh, they were trying to maybe look at maybe flipping Mikel Bridges for some more first-round picks, in which I could probably see why this deal was a lot more valuable to the Nets. Maybe potentially flip a guy to get more first-round picks and helping restock. But now the Nets are without their two stars. And again, this era has been a complete disaster. And Ben Simmons is the last one standing. Um. Out of all the star guys they, they've acquired, he's the last one standing. And so we'll have to see how the situation goes with Brooklyn. Obviously, they still got a winning record right now. And we'll have to see how this goes for the rest of the season. But uh, just a complete and utter disaster. To put it kindly, uh, what happened in the Kyrie KD tenure there in Brooklyn, uh, just nothing worked at all. No success. I think probably only won two more playoff games, I think, I read, than the aforementioned KG, Pierce, Joe Johnson, and uh, Deron Williams team. So, yeah, just uh, completely awful. Uh, I said this in the group chat as well. Those two moves are going to be put in, if if there were such a thing, NBA history books of what not to do as an organization and not how to run it and you know all that it's just a complete dumpster fire of uh of the last few years there in Brooklyn but for Phoenix this is their win now move this is them saying hey let's we're making a run at the championship we're going to get back this year and it has to work or otherwise this is going to really backfire because KD is getting up there he's in his mid-30s, getting close to it. Chris Paul, not getting any younger. 
Um, you don't know what uh, could happen with DeAndre Aiden uh, as we detailed that situation. Like, there's been some turmoil there. Booker hasn't been all that healthy this year. And you have to wonder, could that come back to bite them with all, all, all this trading of the first-round picks that they did? But this is their win-now move. As you can make an argument that the four they have now are that's better than anything that is going on in the West. Where you got Aiden, you got Katie, Booker, and Chris Paul. Who's going to guard Booker and KD? It's going to be unstoppable. You can't stop both of them. It's going to be tough. At least with Booker, he's like, okay, we know we have to defend him. Well, with KD now, you're like, okay, like we got to get, we got to get some really good defenders and go up and deal with these guys. And so now I think Brooklyn has really helped Phoenix out and Phoenix getting Kevin Durant in this deal to say to the West, <laughs> we're going to make things a lot more difficult for everybody in the West and uh, make things a lot more interesting. And that's indeed what happened on uh, on Wednesday night, Thursday, early Thursday morning. Who, who cares? It is a big freaking deal that happened here. And so KD is now a Phoenix Sun on his fourth team. And... Again, has, what, 25, 26, 27, something like that, games with this team to really put them up in the West. And again, the West is wide open. It's wide open. And they can definitely make a move as the rest of the season unfolds. So that was a crazy trade deadline. Again, just so many moves. So many second-round picks getting dealt. You would think this is 2K. <laughs> so crazy. So that was a wild NBA trade deadline. Again, something I don't know if we've ever seen in recent memory. But a whole lot of fun to keep up with everything. But a whole lot of trouble, too, to try to keep up with everything. That's the trade deadline. And uh, that's where we're going to leave off with the NBA again. Hopefully me and Charles can get together here in the next week as we got the all-star break approaching and talk about some of these moves a little bit more and see where they could lead these teams in the next part of the season. So with that being said, it's Super Bowl time, everybody. That's right. Super Bowl 57. Chiefs, Eagles, the two number one seeds, the top two MVP vote getters, the MVP winner versus the MVP runner up. What a what a good matchup we have in Phoenix, Arizona. And I'll tell you again, probably the best game that that stadium will has seen all year. And I think we and we hope as much for a good game. I think we all currently hope for a classic. We'll have to see if it rolls that way. But at the very least, I think we should get a really good game. So let's take a look at Chiefs and Eagles. Let's dive into it a little bit more. And I'll start off with this. Earlier in the week, I kind of was leaning Chiefs. And... Uh, I'll get into some reasoning why here in a little bit. And partly, that's because of Mahomes. Um, even with a bum ankle, is <laughs> better than 90% of the quarterbacks in the league. That's just a fact. Um, he's been awesome this year. And there's a reason why he's MVP. You would think after trading Titan Rekill and getting Juju, MVS, like, okay, maybe a little bit of a drop-off. But, I mean, no, there wasn't. It was a complete surprise that there wasn't a little bit of a drop-off and that they were one of the best teams in the league, period. But uh, earlier in the week, I was leaning Chiefs, and that's partly due to 
Mahomes. Uh, but to get into more, more about this game for going into finalizing uh, my pick, um, this game is going to be coming down to I think what uh, the oh, what's always been said about the SEC. I think the battle in the trenches. If you look at both of these lines, both on the offensive line and defensive line, I think you're going to see a war between both of the lines of these teams. For the Chiefs' offensive line, they rank first in both pass rush win rate and sack rate, along with fifth in pressure percentage. This is coming from ESPN. And they got guys up up front that are really good at protecting Mahomes, and they're going to need to, considering that ankle is still a little bit banged up. Orlando Brown, solid left tackle, pretty good left tackle. Joe Tooney, one of the best guards in the league. Creed Humphrey, one of the best centers in the league. Trey Smith, a steal in the sixth round. I still don't know how that happened. Kind of do, but I kind of don't. Been awesome for them at right guard. Probably the only place where there's a little bit of concern is right tackle with Andrew Wiley. But that offensive line for the Chiefs has been really, really amazing this year. Um, of course, they upgraded it two years ago by getting a lot of these guys, and it's paid off for them uh, big time. And in pass block win rate, they've led the league as well. And they're going to need to do all that stuff well if they're going to keep Philadelphia's defense from making big plays. And speaking of Philadelphia's defensive line, there's a lot of depth on that defensive line and a lot of playmakers. They racked up 70 sacks during the regular season, which is the third most in NFL history. A wild stat to think about. And they have four players that have 10-plus sacks in the season. And it's the only team that have such a stat and have it be an official stat. And you know, when it became official stat in 1982, that is kind of like, oh, wow. Um, Hassan Reddick, probably the leader of that group who took over the NFC Championship game, if you remember that hit on Brock Purdy that essentially knocked Purdy out the game. But you just have guys on that defensive line that just get after it. Reddick, Brandon Graham, you got Javon Hargrave, Fletcher Cox at the defensive tackle positions. Got Dominican Sue. They got Robert Quinn. They drafted Jordan Davis. I mean, they just got guys up there that can get after it. So that's the first battle to watch is between the Chiefs offensive line and the Eagles defensive line. Now, looking at it the opposite way. Looking at the Eagles offensive line. They're really good too at what they do. They protected Hurts pretty well all year long. And they've run blocked really, really well and dominated that game up front. Led by Lane Johnson, one of the best right tackles in recent memory. Led by Jason Kelsey, one of the best centers in recent memory. And you got all all these other guys up front as well that are doing their job and making things possible to where Hurts and this offense can run like a well-oiled machine. And that they have this year. And they're going up against a Chiefs defensive line that has Chris Jones, who's been a beast and recently got his first playoff sack here recently which is kind of crazy and you also got him and frank clark and george karloftis the rookie um the chiefs defense in general they've got a lot of rookies on this team and they've played them a lot this year and it's paying off here late in the season to where they're starting to play pretty well and starting to get the hang of things. And it could not come at a better time 
for Kansas City. But the battle of this game, I think, is going to come down to, of course, we're going to have the quarterback battle and, you know, Mahomes versus Hurts. That's going to come down to the battle of the trenches on both sides. The Eagles defensive line versus the Chiefs offensive line. The Eagles offensive line versus the Chiefs defensive line. It's going to be a battle up front. It's not the most glorious thing to watch. It's not the most fun thing to see. It's the Super Bowl. Who cares about the offensive line, defensive line? But it's going to be something to keep an eye on for this game because it's going to be a battle up front all game for all 60 minutes. That is unless it's over. It goes overtime. Then we can add a little bit more. Um, going to more about the Eagles defense. The pass defense is one of the best in the league. And it's led by, particularly, Darius Slay and James Bradbury. Probably the best corner duo in the league. And you take a look at those two. They've completely shut down opposing offenses passing game. And it's going to be tough here. The Chiefs averaged the most passing yards during their regular season, close to 300, while the Eagles gave up the fewest and around 180. And again, coming from ESPN, and this is coming from the Elias Sports Bureau, but it's just the third Super Bowl in history to, to feature a matchup of the number one passing offense against the number one passing defense. And in the first two instances, the defensive team won convincingly with the Seahawks being the Broncos, all those years ago, remember Legion of Boom, that happening? Then also the Buccaneers topping the Raiders, along with Gruden and uh, Rich Gannon and uh, those guys. So there is history here with the defense being as good as it is in the passing game, over uh, winning that war and winning the game. So there is known history about that about that matchup. And so let's take a look at the matchup on the offensive side for both these teams. I think for the Chiefs, especially going back to the offensive line, defensive line battle, that running game is going to have to make some plays. We know what they can do in the passing game. We know what McKinnon and Pacheco can do in the passing game. But can they run a little bit with those two guys? Can they make some plays? And if not, those two guys might be guys to watch in the passing game. Um, particularly if the Chiefs' weapons like MVS, Juju, uh, Tony, uh, and I'm missing a couple guys, Sky Moore. If, uh, if they're able to slow them down, it might be looking at those two guys and looking at Kelsey because let's be real here. Kelsey is going to get his. Like he's probably going to have the most targets of any chief and probably the most targets of anybody on either team. The best safety blanket in the league is Travis Kelsey. And he's going to have a lot of targets in this game. And honestly, I don't know what the Eagles will do to defend how they will defend them, whether it's a linebacker or a nickel or safety, I don't know. I mean, it, I think a lot. every team has tried everything, and none of it's worked. Um, so maybe Pacheco and McKinnon get in on the passing game if the running game isn't working and if the, if the Chiefs receivers are not doing anything, if they're not getting open. Because that Eagles pass defense, again, is really great. Bradbury, Slay, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, really good slot guy for the Eagles as well. So you might see those two guys make a couple big plays. Now, as far as the Eagles side, I think one way they can win this game is with that running game and keeping the ball away from Mahomes. And that goes, again, back to the whole offensive line, defensive line battle. They've been doing this all season long, getting running lanes for Jalen Hurts and Miles Sanders, and as of late, Kenneth Gainwell, who's popped off a couple big-time runs here recently. 
And that's one reason they've had a lot of success. Now, sure, Devontae Smith and A.J. Brown and Dallas go there as a secondary option. Um, those two guys have been elite this year, um, both going over 1,000 yards. And this is why they got A.J. Brown for, to play in games like this. Um, but the running game is going to be something to watch for Philly and trying to keep the ball away from Mahomes. Watch we'll see how healthy Hurts is again. I mean, let's be real. Nobody is healthy this time of see uh, this time of season. Nobody is. All right. Probably all these guys have little, you know, injuries here that they're dealing with. Because it's that time of season. They they've played all these games. Nobody's going to be fully healthy. Um, but Sanders, Hurts, Gainwell, that running game, I think, is going to be key and trying to keep the ball away from Mahomes, uh, particularly if a defense is, you know, not holding up as well as they think it will. So maybe that's an idea. Maybe if, even if the pass defense is doing well, just keeping the ball away from Mahomes because you know something wild can happen with Mahomes in a heartbeat. And as far as other... Matchups. I mean, again, those Chiefs rookies, there's a couple on the back end that are going to have to deal with that tandem of Smith and Brown. And all I could say to them is good luck uh, because it is going to be tough again. Those guys have got over a thousand yards receiving each this year, and there's a reason why. But honestly, in taking a look at this game, it is about the most even game you can probably think of. I mean, the records are about the same. Um, looking at predictions-wise for the FPI, for ESPN's Power Football, Power Football Index, it's about even. The spread is around one and a half in favor of the Eagles. I mean, listen, it's right down the middle, pretty much even. As even as you can say it is. So, in all honesty, this is a really tough pick for me. And again, I was leaning Chiefs. But I don't know. I, I think I got a feeling about the Eagles that somehow they're going to win this game. And I think the one thing that cannot allow to happen, and it goes away to the whole keep away thing, they cannot let Mahomes have the ball last. They cannot. Because weird things happen when Mahomes has the ball last. Take a look at the Bengals game. All right? Weird things happened there down the stretch in that one. Mahomes got the ball late. Didn't have to do too much. But got them in position to go and win the game. Weird things just happen when Patrick Mahomes has the ball to close the game. So they cannot, if they want to, I, I think it's going to come down to a, a last possession type of game. And if it's Mahomes and the Chiefs having the ball last, it, I mean, again, weird things, strange things will happen, I think. And you could potentially see the Chiefs going down there and winning the end of the game. But I do think the Eagles, even whatever happens, I think the Eagles have been the more balanced team, I think I would say, as far as offense and defense and how good they both have been all season long. So instead of... Going with the Chiefs like I was feeling earlier in the week, I think I'm going to go with the Eagles here. But this game is going to go down to the wire. This game's going to be close. Again, I'm not saying the Eagles are done if Mahomes and the Chiefs had the ball last. I'm just saying a lot of weird stuff happens when, when they had the ball last. 
And they're a threat from anywhere on the field if they got the ball last. Not, I'm not saying they'll succeed every time in that scenario, but they're pretty hard to stop in that scenario. But I'm going to go with the Eagles. And also, looking back at that stat about the top passing defense against the top passing offense, I think that's a pretty safe bet as well. And also, I, take this into account. I don't know how much this will play a factor into this game, but probably a lot of guys on the Eagles think Hurts should have won, won the MVP. And that they'll go out and say, like, hey, this our guy's MVP, and they're going to go out and perform for him. And I don't think necessarily it's in their heads, but it might be. You never know. But uh, I will go with Philly to win the Super Bowl here and. Another hectic night in Philly. Let's see if it's going to top what happened when Foles won it back in, uh, what, 2017, 2018? Let's see if it happens again. Uh, so I am rolling with the Eagles here, and I hope I do not get crucified in the group chat by a particular person. Uh, but I'm going with the Eagles here to win Super Bowl 57. But I think we should be in for a fun game and it's gonna be a fun night we're doing prop bets and all this stuff between the four of us it's gonna be fun uh just you know a couple fun ones i did have a fast and furious one in here uh but the trailer got released today i do have a fun one of uh will <laughs> will tom cruise debut the new mission impossible trailer while doing a crazy stunt um it's more likely than you would probably think um, but there's a lot of fun ones in here. So it's going to be a fun night on Saturday, on Sunday, rather. I'm thinking about college football again. Uh, it's going to be a fun night to close out the season. Uh, looking forward to talking about it next weekend, recapping it and getting into the offseason, which is just about as equally as fun to talk about and speculate. So, guys, that's our Super Bowl preview. That is this week's pod. Again, a lot to get through. It's been a wild couple days here, especially with the NBA. And you got the Super Bowl stuff going on as well. So thank you guys for tuning in. Hopefully you guys have a good rest of your day. Have a good weekend. If you're going to a Super Bowl party, have fun. Enjoy yourselves. Not too much, but just enough. And we'll talk to you all next time.